0: One of the problems that we kept hitting as we were building these companies and launching these products was the one of permissions. Like how do I add permissions to an app in a sane way and in a flexible way and in a way that as time goes on and new customer requirements come in, they can be updated?
1: Product manager role is kind of like to be a liaison between these two types of people. and so I think having as much empathy as possible is what really helps with that.
2: You are listening to the Kublist podcast a show interviewing project maintainers for CNCF sandbox, incubating, and graduated projects. We'll discuss each project to understand where it came from and discuss the roadmap and plans to continue the project. Hi, I'm Mark Campbell. I publish the Kubelist weekly newsletter dedicated to Kubernetes and the CNCF ecosystem. I'm the founder and CTO at Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like Puppet, Harness, HashiCorp, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem software. Check us out at Replicated.com. The Kubelist podcast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit Heavybit.com. Finally, sign up for the Kublist Weekly Newsletter and read previous issues at Kublist.com. On today's episode of the Kubelist podcast, we have Jake and Jimmy from AuthZ on to talk about the Zanzibar white paper and their open source implementation, SpiceDB. This isn't a CNCF project, and we do talk about that some. The conversation starts out really discussing the Google Zanzibar paper and the challenges with implementing authorization in an application. We move on to talk about the founding of their company, AuthZed, and how it's related to SpiceDB. Jake and Jimmy then discuss the decision to make SpiceDB open source and their decision to keep it out of any foundation for now. We spend a lot of time talking about what it's like implementing SpiceDB in an existing application and use cases for it. And finally, the conversation wraps up with a discussion about the roadmap and what's next in the project. SpiceDB is an interesting project from a really good team and definitely worth checking out. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Kublis podcast. Today's episode is going to be fun. We're going to get pretty technical and dive into SpiceDB, an open source project from AuthZed. As always, Benji's here with me. Hey, Benji. Hello, hello, hello. So let's just jump in. Let's get started with an intro to our guests. Today, we have Jake Mashenko and Jimmy Zelensky from AuthZ joining us. Jake and Jimmy have an interesting background and have worked on a project or two you've probably used in the Kubernetes ecosystem. Welcome, Jake. Jimmy. Hey, good to be here. Thanks for having us. All right, so we're going to spend time today talking about SpiceDB, a project that you've open-sourced as part of AuthZed. But before we jump into that, like, I would love to hear a little bit about your, each of your backgrounds. Jake, will you start and just kind of share a little bit about your background, how you got into the cloud-native ecosystem?
0: Sure. Yeah, I guess coming out of college, I worked at some of the traditional tech companies you may have heard about. The most recent big company I've worked at, or before starting our first company, was Google. Uh, that's where I met Joey. Joey's our CTO and third co-founder. Um, and we left Google to start a company. Um, that company was called DevTable, and we were doing an online IDE. The IDE never really kind of took off, but we did build a thing out of that called Quay. Uh, Quay was the first private Docker registry, um, if you're unfamiliar. This was around even before like Docker Hub or Docker Registry or any of those things. I mean, they had the public registry, but nothing that you could put like private sensitive images in. So we went and we built that and that was kind of like our uh, that, that's the thing that dragged us into what I would call like the infrastructure space. Um, so through that, that's when we started getting into things like container images, containerization, distributed systems, uh, sort of like the whole how do you run these container images at scale, that kind of area. From there, we got acquired by a startup you've probably heard of called CoreOS. Um, at CoreOS, we continued to build Quay, and it became an integral part of CoreOS's offerings. Then CoreOS got bought by Red Hat, and then you know CoreOS's distribution of Kubernetes became part of Red Hat's offerings. So then we sort of just like kept growing our presence in this um, cloud native or containerization first uh, infrastructure uh, system. And then as time went on, you know, uh, Red Hat ended up getting bought by IBM. And then we decided it was time to go out and do something new. And one of the problems that we kept hitting as we were building these companies and launching these products was the one of permissions. Like, how do I add permissions to an app uh, in a sane way and in a flexible way and in a way that as time goes on and new customer requirements come in, they can be updated. That's when we found out about the Zanzibar paper uh, decided that this was something that uh, really sort of hit the mark on solving those problems that we've been running into, and decided to go off and build a company based around it.
2: Yeah, that's that's great. Um, I mean, I think I've, a lot of us have used Quay. You know, we, you know, being the first kind of external Docker registry outside of Docker Hub, you know, was was super appealing to be able to like see some of the enterprise functionality that 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 y'all were building in there. Um and I think we're gonna dive into that a lot. Um before we do, Jimmy, like same question for you, kind of like your background. How long have you been involved with the I think you were with the Quay project, you know, too, and I'd just love to hear that same, you know, your background story.
1: Sure. So uh, effectively my background is uh in college, I got super frustrated in my first course where we learned how to like program with concurrency. I thought like the Java APIs for thread pooling which are like bad. So I found this very young pre-1.0 language at the time called Go and started writing some open source software in Go. Basically, uh, I wrote a piece of BitTorrent infrastructure that became part of Tupperware, which is the container orchestration system at Facebook. And then when I went to graduate, I was looking for uh, basically interesting jobs in the space and knew CoreOS from their project at CD and effectively saw a (laughs) literally just like a... uh, Hiring uh, thread on Hacker News where Alex Polby was asking if people wanted to work in New York at CoreOS. So the rest is history. Basically interviewed with uh, Jake and Joey, my co-founders, and then joined the Quay team, helped Quay. Eventually transitioned into product management roles um, and was managing Quay, um, some operator stuff, and then also some Ansible stuff when we got acquired by Red Hat. The rest is history, right?
2: Yeah, that's that's actually super interesting. Um, I. Like I, I, I met you way back in the day, you know. Like when you were sitting at the 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 CoreOS office in, in in New York, um, the transition from like deeply technical, you know, writing part of container orchestrations in Go as a pre early language into product management. Like while you did that there, like is there anything else that you can you can share there as to like what drove you to make that decision and move over into the product role?
1: Yeah. Honestly, I think Jake was a huge help in kind of like pushing me to um, kind of reach out of my comfort zone for that. But I think he had correctly identified that like a lot of what drives me as an engineer is actually kind of like the outputs and producing really useful software for the uh, the user. So kind of where my motivation was coming from kind of made sense for the product role. I was still deeply technical in the product role. You can be a technical product manager. So I don't think that was actually limiting. And in fact, like, it probably helped with having empathy for the different parties involved, right? Like you can empathize with the customer who's just trying to solve their problem. You can empathize with the engineer who has to build and maintain the stuff, right? Like product manager role is kind of like to be a liaison between these two people or these two types of people. And so I I think having as much empathy as possible is what, what really helps with that.
2: Yeah, I think as we're building these like, you know, infrastructure products selling to engineers or DevOps related and things like this, like, you know, the... The traditional role of a product manager who doesn't understand the implementation—it's really, really hard to like get into that. And so, like coming into that role, excited about it with a strong technical background, where you know you understand what it's going to take to build it, you understand what it's going to take to adopt it, and like how to meet customers where they are—it's like it's just like it's like almost like a requirement in order to ship these types of technical products. And I'm sure the same is true at AuthZ. You're building it like into that same like super technical ecosystem and super technical like end user.
0: Yeah, when your customer is a developer, right? Like you're developer facing, it's kind of hard to be able to empathize with the customer without having walked in those shoes. So, like I think in our space it's a hard requirement.
3: Yeah. So, I want to I want to hear a little bit how you guys started Offset and 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 where like what was the thing that that got you guys uh, hey, let's go let's go do a, let's go do a project. Is there anything in particular was is the problem space that was exciting? What was the real impetus of you guys branching out and, and doing a second startup?
0: Well, second startup was sort of always in, in the cards. Like it's something that uh, I knew I wanted to do from sort of the minute we landed at a big co again. Why, auth said? So, like I mentioned, back in the summer of 2019, when Google published the Zanzibar paper, I read it and immediately sort of like mapped the solution that they were putting forward to the problems that we had experienced in the past. This was back in 2019, and I was like, Jimmy, Joey, let's go start a company. Um, you know, For various reasons, we didn't end up doing that until 2020. When we set out to go build the thing, I was like, well, surely in the last year, you know, there must be some competitors in this space. Someone else must be trying to do Zanzibar. And in that whole year, like nobody else uh, really seemed to be pursuing it or taking it seriously. And I'm like, this space is still kind of wide open. As it usually goes, of course, you know there are other people trying to do Zanzibar's now. Um, some people have done it internally. There's a couple other projects, uh, open source and otherwise, uh, that are doing it. But like, I still think that the space is largely open and largely unsolved. So you know, it's, it's just going and creating that solution to solve the problem that we had experienced in the past, and then having the framework of the paper to help us. Uh, have confidence that the the method or the route that we were pursuing was going to be scalable and bear fruit and be as flexible as it looks on the surface.
3: Great. So you guys kind of found the problem space. Hey, this is something I've dealt with, and here's a really good implementation. All right, so for those of us that don't know what Zanzibar is, which is myself included, what what is Zanzibar? I know it's complicated. I would also love to hear any insights you might have of Did you use some version of Zanzibar internally when you were at Google? Because you said you were at Google earlier in your career. So just give us a little more understanding of of what Zanzibar is and and how you've kind of used it pragmatically or or not.
0: Yeah, um, so potentially this is sort of a lucky coincidence or lucky happenstance, but I was at Google before Zanzibar launched. So I have no insider knowledge, and therefore I'm not worried about, you know, uh, accidentally violating something or doing something that I shouldn't know. So yeah, getting back to what is Zanzibar. Zanzibar is a way of representing all of the relationships between people and data, data and other data, people and other people as a directed graph. and then setting up permissions uh, queries, like trying to solve permissions problems as doing a graph traversal. So basically, you can think of at, at sort of like one end of the graph, you have all of your resources. So in clay, this would be things like repositories. In GitHub, it would also be repositories. Uh, you, you know, you can think of what the, in Google Docs, it would be the documents themselves. And then at the other end of the graph, you have your subjects. So those are usually things like users or access tokens. Um, and what Zanzibar does is it turns this problem into saying, can I find a path through this directed graph from the resource to the subject? And if you find the path and the path has an edge with the proper permission, then that user is considered as having that permission.
3: Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. So so it's like you're, you're traversing the graph to see, hey, does user X have permission or some type of permission for repository Y? Uh, we'll use the GitHub analogy that you use there. And so that gets interesting, and I'm inferring here a little bit, but but that seems like it gets interesting when you have groups and subgroups. I know with my GitHub repository, we've got a product team um, and then we also have an engineering team, and these are just like the teams within the GitHub org itself. So is that a correct assumption that the interesting thing is is when you start having like nested and and relational types of things within these groups, is that right? Like a hierarchy?
0: Yeah, that's exactly it. Whenever you have a complicated hierarchy, and moreover, when that hierarchy implies things about the way permissions should be computed, That's when you really benefit from modeling it as a graph and being able to solve it as like a graph traversal problem. Take, for example, like a bank account. Uh, This is something that everyone's familiar with. If you want to be able to read the transactions in a bank account, what are some of the ways that you get that permission to read those transactions? Well, number one is you own the account, right? That's the really obvious one. Number two could be that you're an authorized party on the account potentially like a spouse, um, a financial advisor or something like that. Another way is you could, this could be like a corporate account and you could be the CFO for that corporation and you get read access on all accounts. Um, another way could be uh, that you are the counterparty to a transaction. Maybe that gives you the right to read that transaction, right? So there's just like, you, you can see that the way like people structure things is sort of like a social problem in terms of like the way people relate to one another, and then we structure our data in very similar ways, where we like to put things in like nice, clean hierarchies, and we like to have things uh, inferred based on our role within those hierarchies.
3: That totally makes sense. Yeah,
2: yeah. So then Zanzibar is a white paper that Google released that defined how to build that like that graph model, how to define this, and to say like this is an approach. And then AuthZed, your your startup right now, like. Is it fair to say that Authzed is essentially like a an easy to use, reusable implementation of the Zanzibar paper that I can implement into my stack and then, you know, have a reasonably well thought out and easy to use permissions model?
0: Yeah, um, I think that's fair. Spice DB is our sort of like implementation, like if you want to think of it as the clean room implementation of the Zanzibar paper, and then there are some things that we sort of added or inferred or innovated um, around the Zanzibar paper because we were finding that, sure, when you're at Google, you can just tell your engineers, like, you must go interact with these APIs, like, however good or bad they may be. But when you're a startup, like, you have to entice users to come and to use the platform. So we've invested a lot into making the APIs uh, easier to understand, um, making sure that they're uh, something that solves more use cases than just the ones that you might have at Google. Um, and, and then uh, we have like our schema layer built on top of the very rudimentary namespace uh, definition syntax that's in the paper as something to just help people uh, write better schemas and reason about their their sort of permission systems better. So yeah, it, it's take the Zanzibar paper, Sort of do like a clean room implementation and then start innovating on top of that to make sure that this thing is actually usable uh, by the general public or the people who would be implementing one of these things.
2: So, SpiceDB is completely open source and it's a clean room implementation of the paper. Like, it might take a little bit of work for me to integrate it, but like, I could literally just grab SpiceDB, drop it into my app, you know, write like integration code, and then have an implementation of Zanzibar in my SaaS application today. That's exactly
0: right.
1: Yeah, n- not only that, though, y- you can additionally use lcd.com and not have to like download and run SpiceDB as well. So you can log in and have a what is a, effectively a serverless version, like hosted SpiceDB for you. So if you want a service dependency, you can do that.
3: So I, I would imagine that one of the challenges with, uh, with Zanzibar in general is availability. And I'm, I'm assuming that SpiceDB does a lot of work there to make sure that that's, that's, that's a thing that's available. Um, can you talk a little bit about the challenges and, and what SpiceDB does in regards to availability? And, and how do I, if I'm using AuthZ, for example, for my cloud version of Zanzibar or of SpiceDB, how do I know that you're not gonna go down and cause my application to, to stop functioning? Like, how, what's the model there? How does that work?
0: Well, first of all, all services go down. The idea is to just uh, minimize that as much as possible. So Zanzibar, as running in Google, has a demonstrated performance of five nines of uptime. You know, maybe if you're unfamiliar, that's 99.999% uptime. And the way Google measures uptime, that means that 99.999% of requests to the service are successful requests. The way that this is accomplished is making sure that there are no single points of failure. So Zanzibar at Google is built on top of uh, Spanner. So Spanner is Google's globally like globally distributed asset database that you can use to program on top of to sort of like uh, not worry about a lot of the consistency concerns that usually creep up in some of these types of distributed systems. For Spicedb and Authzed, we've closely followed the implementation details or the um, sort of implementations and performance recommendations and strategies in the Zanzibar paper to be able to replicate that type of uptime and eliminate the single points of failures whenever possible. Um, So one of the ways we do that is like we use uh, CockroachDB or Cloud Spanner instead of having access to Spanner directly on the network like Google does.
3: Okay, great. Because I mean, one of the things that I find really interesting about Spicedb, the project, is you know getting Google scale infrastructure and Google scale papers type thing. Like, obviously, there's all kinds of implementation details there that can be challenging. But uh, h- how you deal with uptime is is really interesting. That's a, that's a great way to, to look at it. I think we all are aware of uh, services going down. To Jake's point, um, we all had a fun December with AWS and Docker Hub and ECR and all kinds of things, so that's a very fair answer there. So I think backing up a little bit, so you started off said SpiceDB was that something that you planned on from the beginning, or is that something? How did this open source project come to be? And it seems like it's starting to get a lot of traction here. So just talk to us about where you started with said and how SpiceDB became this project, and 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 kind of the evolution there. Sure.
1: So with our background, just coming into into the space, Quay was entirely proprietary for a super long time, and then eventually uh, it was made uh, into an open source project. But outside of that, we, we had worked on other open source projects in the space, in the cloud data space for a while, um, like the operator framework, for example, and like lots of different core OS components. So like Having worked at CoreOS and then Red Hat, open source was kind of in our DNA, like we understand how to do it. But at the same time, that means that when we do it, we want to do it right. So at first, we kind of like a little bit hesitant to um, as to like, well, what are the parts that we're going to actually make open source, what are not. But ultimately, when we started to really frame and understand that our product was more of a database, that was kind of when we had the realization that like, well, the status quo for databases is they kind of have to be open source these days. Like excluding Oracle, which I feel like just has um, prior traction from like another era. I can't really think of many of like proprietary databases that have really like had success in more recent years. So I think there's a level of transparency that you need when you want to run a database, considering how critical it is to your application. And viewed through that lens, it was kind of obvious that we need to take that component and run that as an open source project and reap all the benefits and all the uh, negative aspects of, of that style of development.
2: That's actually like super interesting, and I'd love to spend a minute or two kind of digging into more like you know the open source side of things. Like you probably could have and likely had conversations where it's like, yeah, like the implementation of authZ or SpiceDB is actually a database, but we could just wrap this thing as a service, and like that's an implementation detail. It doesn't really matter. Like this is a hosted thing. But like making the decision to say it's a database, like what led to you actually deciding that that was an important thing that you need to share with you know end users and folks who want to implement the the project and like position it that transparently?
0: Well, I think fundamentally it came down to a lot of our early conversations were highlighting the fact that users were actually somewhat surprised that they were storing data in Spicedb. So part of the, the Zanzibar model is to centralize all of that relationship data so that when you need to make a permissions query, the data is already there. It can be requested uniformly from various different like microservices or applications in an application suite. And therefore, because it's centralized, it's also like highly cacheable. It's available, basically, to the permissions enforcement points pretty uniformly. So like, in order to do that, you have to send the data over to SpiceDB. And without that like, DB moniker on there, people were like, well, okay, how do I connect this up with my relational database to make sure that it's reading the right relationships? It was kind of like a conversation that we kept having over and over, which is like, no, you have to send data to it so that it, it knows ahead of time how to make those permissions decisions. And so now that we call it a DB, we don't really get those kinds of questions anymore. People understand that they're going to be storing and retrieving uh, data from this service.
2: So by positioning it that way, it actually made it easier for folks to adopt because you could kind of like fit it into the mental model of how you wanted, like what successful implementations looked like instead of thinking, oh, it's an API when you're able to say it's a database. The average developer who's like in integrating it says, Oh, now that makes a lot more sense, like a lot less questions. I know how to integrate this thing.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, whenever you're trying to do something brand new, uh, and I think having permissions be a service is brand new for most users, you kind of want to give them as many affordances and as many, ha- like hold their hand as often as possible in order to give them a mental model where they can reason about what your service is going to do. Because otherwise, it's just going to seem like complete mystery, complete magic. Uh, so this is just one of the ways that we went and, and helped the users have a model for how to interact with this thing.
3: Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a really interesting point, Jake. I think that that being opinionated in our space is something that is um, underserved often, and it really makes it more challenging for for newbies or for later adopters to understand where it is. So I think that's super interesting. So okay, so. That's the DB part. What's the Spice part? Tell us about where the name Spice came from.
0: As far as we know, or according to the Twitter rumor mill, uh, the original name of the Zanzibar service at Google was Dune. And as you know, the big thing out of Dune is the Spice must flow, so we just wanted to pay homage to that original uh, naming. We, when, when we picked the name, we actually didn't realize that there was a... Well, at least I didn't realize there was a Dune movie coming out that year. <laughs> so it, uh, it also just kind of like uh, was, was an interesting time, thing timing-wise because people were like, oh, yeah, the Dune movie, right? Yeah, I get it. And I was like, oh, well, kind of, yeah, but not really. More of a, an OG reference.
3: Yeah, no, I, and I will go on record as, as saying, first off, I've, I've known Jake... Um, and Joey and Jimmy, for that matter, for a very long time now, um, back in the CoreOS days, actually pre-CoreOS days, and I recall discussing ideas of this project, and the name Arrakis came up a few times, and uh, yeah, so I can attest that before the movie was on the radar, that there was a Dune theme here. <laughs> I, I, I want to understand a little bit more about when you guys decided to flip the switch to open source. Because I know you guys were working on this stuff, and then what were the uh, uh, the big challenges there around both switching to open source, but just also just building up a business around around this 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 model? Sure, a lot of it has to do with like kind of
1: planning I, I, in terms of like you're going to change entirely what your workflow looks like. So prior to that, um, we had very few individual like open source projects. We did have like a couple minor things, but only like little libraries or or like our client libraries that we wanted our users to actually be able to use to integrate. So internally we had mono repo and that's where all the code lives. Well, that means now you have to like kind of tease apart the dependencies within your mono repo. You kind of have to like change how all those things interact and get tested. And then there's, there's like basically a whole workflow change on how you're actually going to do planning for the open source part versus the private part, right? There are just like so many different aspects. I still think we're kind of like dealing with some of these organizational aspects, but trying to identify uh, the kind of like the minimum viable, like teasing apart <laughs> of the proprietary code with what what code you want to be open is basically the first step there. And then um, depending on what you're trying to do with your open source project, I feel like you have to kind of like plan a marketing side for it. So like we wanted to make a big announcement and have like a big splash. And for us, we decided we wanted to do that as a like one year anniversary to the company being founded. And yeah. So like there's a lot of them prep work around that and like kind of prepping like under embargo uh, the announcement and then kind of like hoping you get traction on like social media. It's a whole workflow and whole um, like, I guess initiative, right? <laughs> it was a sprint for like multiple weeks, right?
2: Yeah. So, 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 what you're saying is it's not like go find the latest Google white paper, put some headphones on, write some code in a weekend, and then you have a profitable business. Like with open source, yet still like working. There's a lot of work involved in it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's more about like facilitating open source in the ecosystem as well. Like, there's a whole lot of meta work there like maintaining a like open environment and like trying to foster a community is like a completely separate task from just like pumping out some code internally and like for example one of the things that we've been investing a lot in and seen a lot uh, come out of is our our community discord so if you go to like slash discord um, you'll join like a couple other hundred users that are all developers kind of like modeling their own permission systems asking questions answering questions for each other and we've kind of like been pushing all of our Customers into that that community as well, so that they can give back with their knowledge. And I, I feel like there's lots of other uh, companies out there trying to do open source, and they'll use whatever different like forum tooling or like they'll maybe use like GitHub discussions and things like that. And I think it's all about finding like the right tools that like not only does your company want to use, but also the community that's forming around the project uh, what they want to use.
2: So yeah, Jimmy, that's interesting. I think you know we've had a few other projects on here. You know, often we're talking with folks who have CNCF sandbox or incubating or graduated projects. Um, and the CNCF has really, you know, focused the Kubernetes ecosystem and the broader ecosystem around using Slack channels to communicate. Um, but we have had a few other Projects really recently that have started moving off to Discord and kind of going off in this direction for just a second. You, you chose Discord, and like, was there like a thought process and like, like, like how intentional was it to say we don't want to use Slack and we want to use Discord? You mentioned GitHub Discussions is another option too. Like, like, curious what drove you to land on Discord?
1: I'm not really sure. We like we had a very long discussion about this. I think generally we wanted something that was similar to like the Slack experience, but. Basically, when we realized that we, like for Kubernetes Slack or the CNCF Slack or any of these slacks, you kind of have to go through an approval process to be able to be given a channel and a a place in that community. And uh, I think between all of us, we kind of wanted to foster our own community. So starting from scratch, you're kind of like allowed to kind of break free of these things. And we think that like a lot of the functionality in Discord was appealing and it was effectively free and you get like, it gets to retain all of your history, your chat history and things. So you can actually like mm. search and see older conversations, um, and track some metrics slightly better community wise than I've seen, at least with our, our corporate Slack. So th- there are a couple tools there that are kind of more useful, but also I feel like it's kind of a platform that's just like more inviting in general. It's easier to join a new discord server than it is to add yet another Slack server. And then also, like slacks aren't open so then you have to like run some kind of automated invite system like like slack just kind of isn't made for this discord kind of is and or is like pivoting into that space more and more every day so like every day we kind of see more things added to like the moderator channel that are actually functionality we can take advantage of
3: yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting trend um, that I'm seeing as well. Um, maybe I shouldn't say this, but I prefer Discord over Slack for community stuff 100%. Um, some of the bots and some of the interact it just seems pretty seems pretty slick. But that does bring up a really good question. Are you guys going to look at getting SpiceDB into the CNCF or some other foundation, Apache? Is that something that's on the horizon? Is it something you haven't thought about yet? And how do you guys look in general at governance like in the governance model that you guys want for Spicedb.
0: so like why would you contribute a project to one of these foundations there are basically rights and responsibilities that are associated with belonging to one of these foundations and like obviously the benefits from you know from the creator's perspective right because at the end of the day we're building something and we're putting like our effort, our blood, sweat, and tears into building something, and like from our perspective as a creator, the benefits would need to outweigh the costs. Is there a community that is a perfect fit, like would be a perfect home for a spicy bee? Um, I'm not sure, right? Like w- we basically, it's not it's not a thing that you want to just donate. Like you can't really fire from the hip when you donate your project to one of these foundations because it's like that. That's kind of it. Like you. You can only do that once, right? It's like a latch that once you, you know, cross that Rubicon, uh, it belongs to that foundation. So like, I wouldn't rule it out, but I also don't see that there's like a perfect fit. Like we're, we're not limited to the Kubernetes or the cloud native ecosystem. So like, is CNCF a perfect fit for us? Probably not. Would Apache be a perfect fit for us? I don't know. It's not something that we've gone through the evaluation on. Jimmy, do you have anything to add there?
1: Yeah, I think I can follow that exact same train of thought. I think generally databases are kind of, they can be applied in many different environments and not just necessarily the cloud native one. And while you absolutely do want a community driven project where there is like some influence over the community to own parts of that project and help control that project, I don't think you necessarily always need a foundation to be able to do that. Um, you can accomplish that uh, without one. And if we had to make our own like mini foundation for just our project, I think that might actually make the most sense. I would rather like to see where our project goes and who contributes to it rather than just assume that we are a part of like the CNCF space because even if you look at just Linux Foundation foundations, there's also like the open SFF or SSF, their new like security foundation like, does it make more sense for us to be in that foundation? Does it make more sense to be in like the Cloud Data Foundation? And it, it, it's actually more of a product of your community to make that decision. So I feel like we can't be really the judges to say, hey, I'm going to donate this to this specific foundation. Rather, I would like our community to reach up to assume responsibilities in the project and maybe give us the hint that like, hey, this would actually be a really good fit or maybe we should do our own thing or just like give um, like what's, what's the actual um, kind of like, where are things that we can hand the reins to our actual community directly rather than um, putting that on a foundation where we don't necessarily know exactly if that's what our customers are, are going to value, right? It, it's the foundation's values then versus your your user's.
2: Yeah, I think that's that's totally fair, right? Like, I mean, Jake, to your point, you know, the 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 benefits have to outweigh the cost. And when it's not a project that you built to support your company, but it's like literally like the internal, like the core project that like you're building your entire business around, it's a thoughtful decision that you have to put into it. There's obviously lots of value, you know, when large organizations look at a startup and they say, like, I want to think about continuity and longevity, I want to put a lot of Work into adopting this project. How do I know it's going to last? But there's lots of ways to solve it. Like donating the the trademarks to a foundation are, are one way. But like also, you know, it's an open source project. It's going to live. You know, having permissive licenses that allow people to use it the way they want to get a get what you, possibly what you need. Also, I actually want to shift for a second and kind of like really dive back into the, the the product. I don't have a greenfield project that I'm going to write. I have an existing product. It's out there in the market. I have you know. Tens of thousands of users using it, but like now I have the need. Congratulations! To, yeah. Um, well, this is a fictitious example here, so um, I want to like make a more robust permission model on how to actually do it. So like it looks like you know SpiceDB or Authzed is a is a possible solution, but I already have like some RBAC in my app, and I already have some like homegrown implementation. Can you tell me what it would be like to adopt SpiceDB? or AuthZ, bring it in and and replace all the homegrown stuff that I have at a really high level, what would I be looking at to do?
0: Yeah, um, and I'll also say that this is the majority of the people that are adopting it right now, uh, because they found themselves in a place where continuing to maintain their existing code or their existing homegrown solution um, just is not tenable anymore, either because they're expanding the number of languages that they're using internally, or they're expanding the number of services, or they're adding applications to the application suite, so this is not an uncommon pattern at all. So essentially what the ad, uh, adoption process looks like is that you first have to go and develop a model. Um, we uh, advise our adopters to start with using, like, model their existing model uh, exactly as it exists today. right? Like don't try to go straight to your ideal model. Um, once you've got that model in place, then you can start uh, backporting your data into it. And whenever you need to write a relationship, you can continue to write it in your database, and then you can also write it into Spicedb while you move all your existing relationships over into Spicedb.
3: So, so how do I model? Is the real question. Do you guys have a DSL? Do you guys have like a, like a schema? Like, how, how do I model?
0: We have a DSL uh, that helps you write your schema, and then we have a playground where you can go and you can. Develop these schemas sort of like asynchronously. You don't have to actually call the live service uh, to test it. You can create a set of uh, test relationships and test assertions to make sure that the model is performing the way you expect. And you can do all of that um, just sort of like ephemerally using our playground. Once you have the schema ready, then you can go and you can provision um, a permission system or you can launch your SpiceDB cluster and you can write that schema into the SpiceDB cluster. Once the schema is there, that's when you start bringing your relationship data over.
2: So, like because of that and some of the stuff that you mentioned there, Jake, like it's very testable. I hook this into my CI/CD pipeline. I can ensure I'm not getting regressions. I don't have like you know permissions like that. I, I accidentally wrote some code and, and and broke something. I can like I can continue to test this the same way I test any other part of my application.
0: One hundred percent. And we even have a special version of Spicedb that runs in test server mode. That's designed for uh, the unit test and the integration test case. So, basically, the way it works is you give it, every time you give it a new API access token, it gives you a brand new clean uh, version of SpiceDB for you to sort of like load in your example data, load in your schema, run your assertions against it. Um, so, you can, of course, do that in parallel just using different keys. Uh, so, this is something that we've thought about and we have a story around. How to do this uh, in your CI/CD? How to, to roll it out to your production? Because of course we've done it ourselves, right?
2: Yeah, that's awesome. That's something that's historically like difficult to test—kind of custom permission models inside an application—and um, so you end up doing some kind of crazy and hard to reproduce things. And so, like having that built into the platform is is, is amazing. That's great.
0: And people like the other thing that happens is people just write v1 of their permissions code. And then they avoid changing it at all costs because like everybody's afraid to touch it because they remember that one time that they opened a security hole, right? Like everybody's been burned in this space. and so like innovation here is, I think uh, you know far past the point where we should have something to help us.
1: And it kind of gets in the weeds a little bit too, but the reason why Jake earlier was saying like you can just immediately model what you have and, and not necessarily be concerned isn't purely based on the fact that we have tooling to test it, but the fact that you can define new permissions in terms of old permissions. So you can basically make like forward compatible permission changes and then slowly migrate to those in the code uh, over time. So like all of a sudden, it's not only that like making a change to your permission system is a matter of like how much can I test it, but actually it becomes kind of less frictionful in terms of how much code you have to update to actually even make the change. And sometimes it can be literally no code changes at all. You change your schema, and that just does it.
3: I I want to ask a quick question here. Um, First off, I love hearing about people thinking about ephemerality and and how to test things. So kudos for that. But how would this work, taking it back to the CNCF Kubernetes landscape a little bit, is there a concept here of how RBAC kind of fits into this or like walk me through how how I could use this with a Kubernetes setup? Um, and, and in conjunction with my RBAC uh, setup or 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 just give me like a practical implementation that might that might have some weight.
0: Now, are you talking about your applications
3: RBAC or are you talking about your Kubernetes clusters RBAC? So I'm talking about my, well, I, that's probably a good question for both, but I'm particularly talking about my Kubernetes RBAC. Can I can I integrate that in? So say I have some like, operator that has a permission that I only want certain things to do. Does that make any sense?
0: Yeah, we haven't really explored integrating or replacing the built-in Kubernetes RBAC with something based on SpiceDB, although it is something really interesting um, and something that we would be very, very keen to explore in the future because um, yeah, if you've worked with Kubernetes RBAC, it's like an additive only model and sometimes that's insufficient, right? Like there's no way in Kubernetes RBAC to say a person is allowed to delete the resources that they've created or that they've owned, right? Like that's just not something that you can express. So we would love to be able to make Kubernetes RBAC better but we're primarily focused at this point on uh, providing permissions for your application. And one thing to keep in mind is, RBAC is just one of the models that you can model in Spicedb. Another really common, popular model in Spicedb is like point-to-point sharing. You know, if if you want to collaborate on a document, usually I don't add a user to a role. Usually, I just share the document with them, right? Or I send them a URL and and like those kinds of like sharing sort of things uh, are much easier to model than they would be in like a traditional RBAC situation. You can also model a lot of like social graph and like, ABAC-style things in SpiceDB. So yeah, RBAC is just not the end-all, be-all of permissions models.
3: Well, that's what you say, but you know some of us, know. I'm just kidding. No, that's, totally, that's a really valid point there. And I, I guess where my brain was going was there are applications that probably shouldn't but definitely do intermingle Kubernetes operators or, or CRDs with application logic itself, and I was just trying to think if like if Spice DB had some type of a bridging ability there, uh, and it sounds like it, it very well might in the future pull requests welcome. It sounds like.
1: Yeah. Well, we, we actually have some experiments in this space. Um, we have open source. All of it's purely experimental, and um, none of this stuff we've we've really shipped in any form. But we're we have experimented with the idea of like connections. And for example, like a, a connection would basically be using something else as a data source for those relationships so that you don't necessarily have to like copy data into SpiceDB, but SpiceDB would natively understand how to read data out of another data source. So for example, you could bridge that with our, one of our open source connectors is Postgres. And uh, how that works is it just looks at foreign keys across different tables in a Postgres database. And it uses that as a... Um, Like a primary key, foreign key, primary key to the other table, like that is a relationship. Um, That is similar to like subject like relationship resource. So you can theoretically see a world where um, we're kind of like hot plugging these different things uh, into data sources rather than just using a single data source. Sorry, it's a cuckoo clock. (laughs) You can hear that. (laughs) But um, yeah. You can see a future where um, you can read from external data sources uh, and not just from the the solo uh, Spicedb database.
2: So, like I love the cuckoo clock; that's amazing. So, you know, you you read the Zanzibar white paper and then you realize, okay, great, this is something that we can build an implementation for and ship, and it's around like Z, and I can actually you know implement this really easily in my application. I'm curious if there are any interesting use cases that you you never thought about that you've seen, you know, obviously, like, keep, you know, as anonymous and everything like this, but, like, you know, more than just, I want to protect, like, the objects and, like, control who gets into them. You kind of alluded to some, like, other use cases, but, like, were there any, like, surprising ones where you're like, wow, that's actually, like, really clever and, like, that's a, th- a use that we wouldn't have thought of for SpiceDB or OSED?
0: Well, I think one of the areas is... um Entitlements. like If you think of software entitlements, those are just a, t- a type of permission. Do I have permission to run this software? Do I have permission to enable this feature? Similarly, feature flags can also be considered as like a type of permission. So we've seen people add those kinds of things to their SpiceDB models, uh, which was kind of a surprise. Um, another one are opportunities to use things that aren't natural persons as the subject in a permission check. So rather than saying like, can Mark or can Benji do this thing to this document? It's like, can this machine do this thing to this document? Or can this access token access this API? Or, you know, is this organization itself a member of some hierarchy or whatever? So like this is actually an extension that we made to Zanzibar. In Zanzibar, everything has to be backed by this like unique user ID that Google assigns. Um, But in our system, you can actually use any any object type in the system as a subject in a permissions check, Um, and we're finding some really, really neat use cases where where people are taking advantage of that.
2: Yeah, that's that's super cool. Like thinking about replacing an RBAC model, you know, but like adding entitlements and you know, potentially feature toggles and stuff like this. Like, yeah, totally makes sense. I'm curious, like, you know, when when you were explaining that, I started thinking about the fact that, like, you know, I also now need to know, like. An audit log did somebody attempt to access something they didn't have permission like who accessed it when um, is that part of either the Zanzibar white paper or your implementation through an extension or something on your roadmap or do you just say like no we're going to keep that over here and figure out audit log separately
0: yeah this is uh, kind of one of the roadmap things it's a feature that we've been waiting for people to say I have this concrete like need for an audit log and then like we'll go build it but so far it hasn't actually turned up. Right? Like if you're looking at this as a replacement for your homegrown authorization code that you have in your application, nobody does that right now. right? Like that, that's actually something that we built into Quay really early on, where you could see you know, who was doing what to repositories that kind of a lot of people just don't have an answer for, right? Like if someone attempts to access a Google Doc that they don't have access to, they get like a request share, Screen, but you as the doc owner are not notified, and that doesn't show up in an audit log anywhere. Uh, so yeah, it, it's just something that like we've been patiently anticipating. Uh, like we don't like building things that nobody's asked for because it just you know you can often build the wrong thing. Yeah. Uh, but but it is something that we think will come up uh, sort of in the short to medium term.
1: Yeah, there's also just kind of two different pieces of functionality that we already have that I think kind of like maybe satisfies people like already. We have structured logging <laughs> that is like actually really robust for the whole application. So you can see um, the different like request level logging if you actually just wanted to write like a MapReduce job over your log output from just serving traffic. but additionally we also have a streaming GRPC API that is a watch API where you can actually watch for changes in data. And while that's not going to catch like accesses, it will catch modifications like writes going through. Um, and I think kind of like the combination of these two pieces of functionality, like people can build their own software that listens to the watch API and then um, kind of like creates whatever audit list or audit log that that they want. They can kind of capture that data on their own, record it to whatever systems they want.
2: Yeah, that's awesome. So if somebody has like you know adopted I don't know Splunk or something like this, they could like through a little bit of glue code connect the two up and then have all of that into their their sim or their audit log, whatever that is.
0: Yeah, I had a somewhat surprising interaction with a user the other day where they were like, "I want to be notified if a permissions check fails like a certain number of times." Um, and it's interesting because in their use case that that's a red flag, right? But in a lot of use cases. Uh, if you were iterating through all of the documents on a system and then sending a check for which ones a, a user at your web page has access to, you would expect more to fail than not. And so, like, that's not necessarily indicative of attack. And from our perspective, like, yeah, we successfully said that this person cannot see it. We do not attempt to assign any sort of motivation or emotion or anything like that to. Uh, permissions check failing, right? Like saying that there is no permission, because like it's very use case dependent uh, whether that's actually like something interesting or whether that's something potentially malicious.
2: Yeah, that that totally makes sense. I mean, there are like like I mentioned Sims and other tools out there that are like designed to do that. So if as long as you can get the data out of SpiceDB and fed into a different system, like it's it, like you know, it's data that can be used to make informed decisions about whether or not there is an attack in progress. It's not, like, a complete closed system that is responsible for making that decision. Talking about, like, some of these, though, brought up another, you know, interesting thing. You know, in in my mind, you, you talked about you recommend somebody adopting AuthZ by, like, replacing their existing permissions model, like, modeling it exactly like their current model, and then being able to expand it. So over time, I imagine that these, like, Hierarchies and rules and, 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 and policies start to get like really, really complex. Hopefully, you know, as like, you know, that's the power of the system is you can create these really complex and intricate rules. I, I'm curious how SpiceDB helps me debug, you know, like, Oh wow, I thought I had this set up in a way that, you know, this user shouldn't have permission, but it's granting them permission. Like, is there tooling built into the project to help me understand like which rules are happening where in the, in the complex hierarchy?
0: Yeah, uh, as we mentioned earlier, with the Playground and with the test service, we try to prevent these things from happening in the first place. Um, so you can make a, a set of test data and a set of test assertions where you can model up a user as like, oh, I think a user who has these relationships should never have access to this thing. And that will be validated every time you make a mutation uh, to your permissions model. Um, but in terms of like figuring out why that happened at runtime, we do have a few APIs, like our Expand and our Lookup API, which will uh, help you kind of work through the existing relationships and how those kind of like go into the graph. But there is no, like, there is no single API where you could just click a button. There's no explain plan, essentially, right now. Um, and that's something that we, we are thinking about and gathering requirements for, but haven't implemented yet.
1: So we do have something kind of interesting in the playground that's in the same vein, but not the exact same thing. We have an expected relations tab. So if you feed test data into the system and you have like your schema defined, when you go to the expected relation tab in the, the playground, you can actually ask DB like, hey, what do you think everyone should have? And it will actually generate an exhaustive list of, like, these are all the relationships that these people have and why. And that can help you... Immensely when kind of debugging this stuff. But you still kind of have to distill it down to like a test case that you fit inside the playground and not like a a live system. But ideally, you've basically done a a ton of testing before you promote something into
3: the live system. So, I mean, I think that brings up um, a really interesting question. And that is what is on the roadmap? And how do you guys determine the roadmap? You kind of alluded to we don't want to build it until people want it. Tell us how you measure that and, and tell us about your upcoming roadmap.
1: Well, for roadmap, how we think about the roadmap is kind of divided into two different forms. Um, obviously, there's offset.com, like the, the company's roadmap, and then there's also SpiceDB, uh, the open-source project roadmap. The open-source project roadmap is... Effectively, you can just go to the GitHub issues and see it. We haven't like adopted a concrete release cadence, so we don't necessarily use milestones, but everything is prioritized. And there are various proposals that collect feedback and you can kind of like filter to see things that are like currently in discussion, like currently need discussion, they need to get fleshed out more, they want more feedback from users. We also have like external contributors that are actually working on realizing some of those proposals that are not necessarily us. So there also is kind of a like, if you've got the resources and this matters to you, like... And the community agrees that this is the proposal to move forward, like you're free to move forward and like there's nothing necessarily stopping you. Like we want to facilitate any work that fits that model in community. Do you want to take like how we think about the enterprise roadmap, Jake?
0: Yeah, I mean there's no magic for the enterprise roadmap. It's like enterprises have very enterprisey style uh, requests. And then as those requests come in, we try to map them to one or more customers and then just make sure that we're solving the biggest problem first uh, whenever we can. So yeah, I mean, that's just standard like enterprise software development.
3: Is there an interplay between that and the open source uh, roadmap at all?
0: Yeah, there's always going to be some overlap and there's always going to be some things that like, yeah, these features... Show up in the open source because they were either requested by an enterprise user or they support an enterprise feature. This is part of the sort of like magic and reality of open source businesses, right? Like at the end of the day, it's better for SpiceDB if auth said the company stays around, right? So, like, there's always going to be some tension there and there's always going to be compromises to be made and things like that. But we do have. Like, like we, we do take a very strong approach to making sure that SpiceDB can be useful on its own and that things that go into SpiceDB can be made, if, when possible, can be made more generally useful than maybe the minimal implementation just to support some enterprise feature might have been. Does
3: that make sense? Totally. Okay, great. So uh, I'm convinced I want to use SpiceDB um, and maybe even the Offset uh, cloud product um, but I want to contribute also because there's a missing feature. How, how do I get involved in, in, in contributing? What, what's the best place to go? Are there meetings? Like How, how can I become a contributor to SpiceDB? And just because Jake and Joey uh, and, and Jimmy as well know how good of an engineer I am, this is a hypothetical. I will not actually contribute, I promise.
0: <laughs> yeah. On our uh, SpiceDB repo, there are some issues that are labeled as good first issue, Those would be a good place to kind of like, you know, dip your toes in the water, get your feet wet a little bit. We have the community Discord, which uh, Jimmy mentioned earlier is at slash Discord. That'll sort of auto invite you to the server. Um, And in the Discord, that's where you can get to know the team and get to talk to other users that are integrating, things like that. Um, And then, yeah, beyond that, if you want to do something that's not already marked as a, an accepted proposal, then the place to start would be to open an issue, uh, either as a feature request or as a implementation proposal on the SpaceDB repo, uh, and then from there we would sort of just uh, handle it the way we would any other proposal or feature request.
1: Yeah, I would just add that our Discord has a specific like development channel as well, so um, there's kind of like general questions room, but then also if you want to Specifically, get your handheld um, like walk through an issue. There's um, discussion dedicated to that in one of the Discord
3: channels. Yeah,
2: great. All right, thank you to our guests today, Jake and Jimmy from Authzed. I'm excited, like on how you're thinking about this problem and making it just so easy to like integrate and test and go build authorization the right way. So I don't have to go figure all of this problem out myself. In addition, whenever I'm building a SaaS application. SpiceDB, uh, go out to com. check it out.
3: Thanks for having us. Thanks for coming, guys. Really appreciate the time. Thank you.
2: That's all we have time for today. If you're the maintainer of a CNCF project and would like to be a guest on this show, head over to kubelist.com. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit HeavyBit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks and content on sales, marketing, product, and more for founders of developer tools companies. And This podcast is brought to you by my company, Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem software to their largest enterprise customers. Check us out at
3: Replicated.com.